Tina, again, uh, thank you, Dave, for the uh, liturgy this morning. I'm uh, glad to be with you. My name is Peter, and I'm the pastor here at St. Andrews. If we have not met, just want to also extend a welcome to you. Thank you for being here. We, throughout the summer, have been going through the book of 1 John, and we're going to be in the very last section of 1 John today. I'm going to work through it kind of uh, in chunks of verses. I'm going to give you my outline right here at the top. And I really uh, think this outline is kind of a way we could think about the process by which we come to know faith um, and become part of a Christian community. So the outline this morning is in, in the first section we're going to discover there's a declaration that's being made just a truth statement that's being made about who God is and who the people of God are. And then we're going to move into learning about holiness, a word that some of us maybe, when it strikes us at first, we don't feel totally comfortable with, but we're going to kind of unpack how the scripture talks about holiness and how that really is deeply meaningful for us as far as how we understand what it means to be in relationship with God once again. Then we're going to talk about the tug of war. We're going to actually have a final conversation about these sins, the extremes of sins. Like, what are the worst types of sins that we can engage with, and how can we be left to these types of sins that are so destructive, or what does that even look like, or what does it mean? Then finally, we're going to end on a note of assurance. Um, These are all words from John that he's giving to a church that desperately needs them, that has been through a hard time, has had some conflicts and divisions within the church, and so John is writing to this church so that they can be restored and renewed and that they can reorient themselves around the truth of who God really is through Jesus Christ. And we talked about uh, throughout this whole time that John has this intimate relationship with Jesus, right? Perhaps Jesus' best friend, if there was a category like that. Um, Truly uh, family, um, in the family of God with Jesus, and had that firsthand look at who Jesus was and what he was about. And so he's bringing that to the New Testament church. Uh, Before we read the scripture, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us now, speak through me and get the, my ideas out of the way so that your ideas can come through, um, that you would meet people, uh, meet this congregation this morning where they're at. Lord, we come into this place with different experiences, different weeks, different days, different mornings. Um, so I pray for those who are in need of healing, Lord, that you would just um, give them uh, your hand uh, of peace and hope and assurance and restoration. We pray for those who are just heavy burden, Lord, that they would again be reintroduced to you, who today declares today is a day of holy rest, uh, that we can let go of our concerns and our personal worries, knowing that you have the whole world in your hands, and we can come to know what it means to truly rest inside of your goodness, your grace, and your truth. 
We pray for those who are struggling, Lord, with just wrestling through uh, failure and difficulty, that you would remind us of your true grace and forgiveness and healing and how that's all made possible, Lord, through your scripture and in your life, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us that has once and for all given us the ability to be with you and to know you and to be made clean and to be declared holy before you because of who you are, Lord Jesus. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so if you want to follow along, you'll see the text on the screen, or you can listen along, or you have a pew Bible. I'm just going to read the first line of 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 14. In my Bible, there's a concluding affirmation section here. It's the first verse. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is a declaration, right? For those who have come to church this morning, the purpose of John's letter is to declare that you are an eternal being. I love how um, Tish Warren, in her little book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, talks about the importance of declaration. This is a really special book if you've never seen it before. I'm just starting to work through it. But what Tish does, who she's an Anglican uh, minister, is take everyday, ordinary life circumstances, and then she views how liturgy is woven in, how there's really beautiful meaning in the everyday, ordinary circumstances of our life if we can see it through the lens of how God sees our everyday, ordinary life. And she first keys in on this moment that we all had this morning. You know that moment when you wake up in the morning? That very first moment where you're really kind of dazed and confused, you have smelly breath, your hair is messed up, all of the things that we try and not expose each other to except for our spouses, um, because that's the true love situation, right? But this moment where um, we don't take on our external identities yet, doesn't matter if we're like some fancy rocket scientist or some... A child who's just making their way in the world. In these moments, right early in the morning, we just are who we are in the truest sense of the word. And in that moment, in the origin of each and every day, some of us probably fight that moment, right? A lot of us are like, okay, just five more minutes of this time. <laughs> uh, just give me a little bit more time, these waking moments. In those moments that we so often don't think about in God's view are actually the moments of true grace, where God just declares before you've done anything, before you've uh, gotten ready for the day or started working, he says, grace upon you. This is how she writes about it. She says, we are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace. An identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity 
that we don on that day. So what God gives us is more important than anything else, any other thing that we do for the day. And I love these declarations, I think, because they do speak grace to us, right? There's nothing we can do to earn them. And um, in the Anglican liturgy, in fact, the baptismal font is in the back of the sanctuary. So as when you walk into the service, you're reminded of your baptism. And for Jesus, right, his baptism came for his public ministry because there was a declaration that he's beloved. And that's true for us as well as we enter into the worship space or the day that there's a declaration that we are beloved, that we are made for eternity. Dallas Willard uses one of these declaration statements at the beginning of many of his sermons. He just says this, you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Do you wake up and is that your first thought in the morning? Maybe our growth in our spiritual life is to get to a place where that would be our first thought. That God just sort of gives us this brilliant gift and for the rest of our lives we get to live and learn and explore and grow to the point where we actually can receive this type of wonderful gift. And I think that's the truth about a declaration. You know, when I do a benediction at the end or when we read benedictions in Scripture or we see declarations like this that First John is giving about the, how we're eternal beings, that all we have to do in that moment is not to think, how do I earn this? but to simply open our hands and to say, how do I receive this? There's nothing I can do to earn it. I just need to learn how to be a receptacle for this type of goodness. And we so often want to jump to the second step, right? We want to talk about holiness before we talk about belovedness. But we shouldn't mess the order of that up. We should wake up in the morning and know before we've done anything that we are eternal beings that God loves and made for a purpose. He willed us to be for a reason. Now that, that reason might be a mystery to us, but it is not a mystery to God. And it is our joy to learn how to do that. Another wonderful uh, uh, verse that I think can also have the ability to just form us without even doing anything other than to just receive it is from Colossians 3, 3. It says this, You are hidden with Christ in God, and Christ is your life. You are hidden with Christ in God. When you wake up in the morning, the grace of God has covered you. You are hidden by him. You're hidden in his wings. And so how does that inform how you live the day, how you move into the world? Receive the declaration of God. This truth, things that you can come to believe and know that the New Testament church has come to believe and know and champion the Son of God is the one who teaches you you are eternal. Okay, and we'll keep reading in the text. So that's just the first declarative line. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Okay, so now we're going to take up a conversation about holiness. And where I'm getting this idea of holiness is when we're talking about approaching with confidence. This morning's sermon is about with confidence. What does it mean to approach God in prayer with confidence? To think, man, I can speak with my heavenly Father. He will hear my prayers and he will answer me. Well, one of the first places we see in Scripture where there is an approach made by a human being to Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, is in this famous scene in Exodus chapter 3. You guys know the scene, right, where Moses is uh, there shepherding his flocks and, and uh, just everyday ordinary type pastor, uh, uh, you know, pastor in the sense of shepherding, pastoral uh, way of being out there pasturing uh, with his sheep. And, and then all of a sudden he sees a burning bush and he's drawn and he pays attention to this burning bush that's not consumed. And as he draws close, he hears this, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Now, I've heard many sermons preached on this text. Perhaps you have too. One of the, my favorite is about the sacredness of the everyday ordinary. And that's really a focus on what God says, that, that the earth all of a sudden with God there has become holy because he is there. And it, it maybe is just a revealing of something that's already true, but now that God is here, it can be seen and understood and articulated in a way it wasn't before. But this morning, I want us to think about the sandals. Because God says, take them off. And maybe there's a reason for that. If there is a shepherd who's been walking around all day, what do we think is on a shepherd's sandals? A lot of yucky stuff. And so I won't raise the litany of all of the gross things that are probably on Moses' sandals, but you can imagine what they are, right? And so there's a way in which God, at the very beginning, also teaches Moses something about holiness. What does it mean to approach God? And we see this conversation is taken up in a massive way in the Old Testament. What does it mean that God wants to be present on the earth with people. At first, he comes to one person and says, you know what? There is a difference between you and I. When you enter into holy space, some of the unclean things on your sandals cannot fit within the sacred space. And so we know the story that Moses has this conversation with Yahweh, and then Yahweh commissions him to go off and to liberate uh, Moses' people, the Jews, and they're liberated. In fact, they are brought right back to this very same place to meet with God, the whole group of them. And God says, I want to tabernacle with you. I want to give you my holy presence. But there are some things that you need to do in order for God to be able to reside, for him to be able to reside with his people. 
And now when we think about holiness in this way, we assume a moral category. We've seen, we've heard so many sermons about just how it's about moral right behavior that was a precondition for people entering into the holy space. But there was another category that was also present. All of these symbols, all of these external symbols around the tabernacle where to the Jewish people and the larger culture represented death. So any exposure to these symbols was inappropriate to enter into the holiest of holy places. And so only the priest, on, uh, after 12 days of cleanliness rituals, was able to enter into this place where God's presence dwelt. There was this way in which there's a precondition that if you were going to go into this place where the maker of the universe was present, this one who was truly holy and good and entirely unique, that there was just some things that you couldn't expose yourself to if you wanted to be able to live and be in the presence of God's holiness. Now we know that as the story unfolds, um, and, and this is done for some time, that there's all types of ways in which the people fall short of this contract, that they're not able to keep themselves clean enough to be in God's holy presence. And so we see the prophets raising the concern, why do people keep falling short, unable to host God's presence, and God desperately wants to be with his people. So as we turn to places like Isaiah and the famous text, Isaiah chapter 6, we see this new relationship start to develop. Isaiah somehow is brought to the Holy of Holies in the throne room of God. He isn't acting as a priest going into the tabernacle. Now he's just with God, and he has this vision of being with God. And there's this conversation about how he's unclean, and he's terrified of what that could mean. But God has a solution for Isaiah. He goes and he gets a coal and he puts it on his lips. And this is the first time in Old Testament we see something different in the interaction. The interaction is no longer an interaction where there's a precondition that the person, whoever it might be who's going into God's presence, needs to be made clean before they get to God's presence. No, in this scene we see that God has made Isaiah clean through his holiness. This image is also picked up for the tabernacle in uh, Ezekiel 47.1 and following in the whole chapter where Ezekiel begins to have this image of the temple, but he sees that streams of living water are flowing from the temple out into the desert, into the desert climate, bringing new life straight into the desert. These are revolutionary ideas for the prophets who conceptualize God in one place for one person at a time to interact with, and now God is breaking out all over the place. And of course, we see this most profoundly and embodied in Jesus, but Jesus takes it one step further. You remember the mess on Moses' sandals? You see, that very same mess that God says, you can't bring that into my presence. Jesus is born in a barn. 
And the symbol there is that he actually enters into that mess. And Jesus goes around finding unclean people that the the culture had deemed unclean, and he brings his holiness to these unclean people. And by his holiness, like that coal for Isaiah, they are made holy. And this is all in the background for John as he is saying, you can approach with confidence that if you have met Jesus Christ, if you know who Jesus is, then you no longer have to have trepidation and fear when you're coming into the presence of God. Not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And so this is the concept that should be in our minds as we think about entering into prayer. Thank God that he sent Jesus into the world, that Jesus made it possible for us to speak to our Heavenly Father. And so we can enter into the throne room of grace with confidence, knowing that because of what Jesus has done, we can speak to God himself. And it's only logical after that, after we kind of have this idea that the church starts to work out, well, what does this mean? You know, are there things that we can do that are so off the rails that we no longer can approach with confidence? What does it mean to be able to be a part of the church and adopt this identity? And this is really what verse 16 through 18 are getting at. So hear these words as we work through the text. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. And so this is where we're going to get into this conversation about a tug of war. And the tug of war, I I think if you read the whole book, it really helps you. So if you're tracking along, I'm hoping that you're picking up all of the information First John, but he's writing a full letter. And so all of the things he's saying now are informed by the things he said before. But there's this way in which there's two really egregious ways to sin uh, that John is talking about. And he's concerned with because he's in a community that's been touched by sin in a significant way that has caused great disruption to God's people. And so he's reminding them of ways in which we can err greatly as human beings. One is delusion. Okay, I got two D's for you, like a good preacher, okay? On the tug of war of the great sins, one is the sin of total outright delusion, And the other is the sin of total outright defiance. Okay, so delusion would be to say, I have no sin. I'm here today to tell you I got baptized, I've been forgiven, and now I've worked my way to the point where I'm not sinning anymore. And because I'm not sinning anymore, I'm virtually infallible like God is, right? God speaks to me. I tell you what you should hear and know and understand. And I am a great authority because I don't 
sin anymore. So you better listen up if you want to know how to not sin anymore. We see voices of authority that come to us like this, right? And they, they appeal to this sense within us, like, how are they so confident? How do they know all the answers? How do they know how to believe and live in such a way where they could achieve such a high level of living? And there's this, this ultimate piety that we could uh, have an instinct towards. But of course, we know if we, as we look at the first part of 1 John, that this is something that he warns deeply about because these types of voices of authority were within the church. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, so that's like the sin of delusion. Like you have deluded yourself to think that you have no sin, right? But also there's a sin of defiance. This is when we understand God's world's and God's way of life, and God's truth, and the law, and the things that God has taught us and instructed us on how to live, and yet we are willfully choosing, even gleefully choosing, to reject it. Right? There are just things that lead to death, and and in its worst form, we can even build ideas and systems and ways of thinking around these ideas that would say, actually, what you think is wrong is actually good, and you should do it. I mean, we could name just external uh, realities, like something like alcoholism, right? If we just say, well, drinking all the time, all day long, is actually a good thing. It makes you merry and cheery, and you should do it um, because you'll have a happy life, right? We all know that this type of thinking is a way to death that it can be completely destructive, right? Pornography is another good example of this. The whole systems and frameworks built around pornography saying, oh, you should just do this. It doesn't matter. Like, if you do it, we're all free to do whatever you want. There's no harm that could come of this. But the reality we see within God's natural world is that if you're giving yourself over to these things, that there's so much harm that can be done in your relationships and having healthy relationships These are just examples. We could all think of examples. And so as we defy, right, as we defy, willfully defy, in its worst extreme, this is another way in which we can encounter sin that leads to death. So these are like the two great poles. And my guess is that most of us fall in the middle of these two, right? So we're saying there's a sin that leads to death, And sometimes those things cannot easily be corrected in people who just don't want to hear the truth and live by the truth. But then there's all of those who fall in the middle, who each and every day have questions like, why do I keep on sinning even though I'm trying so hard to be a good, faithful Christian person? Why do I keep falling into the same potholes? I know where they're at in my neighborhood. And I keep driving around, but when I get too busy or too fast, I still keep falling into them over and over and over again. When am I going to fill in that pothole and realize that it's no fun destroying my car? And yet, this is something true for the community. You know, 
the moment that you come into church, the church has sin within it. Each and every one of us brings our flaws and baggage and sin. And so what does John want us to do with this? Well, I think it comes right after this idea of thinking we can be without sin. Don't say you're without sin. He says, the way in which we work out this type of thing is we pray for one another, right? We pray for people that uh, are our brothers and our sisters who are struggling with sin. We, we try and do everything we can to care and have compassion, not judge their sin, but to, to actually pray for them earnestly and to say, I just pray that you would help them with that. And also that we come together. What I love about uh, like being a Presbyterian, one of the things, if you don't know some of the things about what it means, is that we come together for communal confession and prayer. We do that because together we state, as a community, we need God's forgiveness. And so we confess. And these are the things that God uses in our lives to grow us and to form us and to shape us. Okay, so this is this whole conversation around sin and how we work that out within the community and some of the ways perhaps we can understand it. And so let me lead, read to you these final concluding uh, remarks from John as he ends this, first, this letter. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so this section, I want to talk about the assurances that are given to us as we are called the family of God. That we are, if we're in him, we are in the truth. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, uh, modern preachers, is a, a man named Will Willimon. And he's just a, a wonderful storyteller. And so I wanted to read to you a story that I think gets at this idea of what it means um, to have assurance within God's family. He writes about how when he was 10 years old, he was uh, at a church called Buckham United Methodist Church in the South. And on uh, every Thursday afternoon when he was 10, he would go and do confirmation class, and he did that for some time. He talks about how he would get instructed on theology and on history. He said in the United Methodist Church, theology takes about 15 minutes, but history takes about at least four or five classes to cover. And he said on the last week of the class, he walked in on a faithful Thursday evening where he was greeted by the teacher of the class, a woman who said this, where is your tie? All the other boys have ties on, and we're having our picture taken by a professional photographer on the steps of the church with Reverend Dr. Herbert. Where is your tie? I told you everyone else in the class has a tie. How come you don't have a tie on? 
Well, the 10-year-old Will Willimont said that he ran out of the room with tears, and after a while, he had made a game plan. He would go and stand by the Honorable Reverend's reserved parking space until he came. Eventually, Dr. Herbert pulled up in his blue Plymouth, and the saintly pastor stepped out, and Will jumped in and said, Dr. Herbert, you don't know me, but I am Will Willimon, and I am in the confirmation class, and they said we were told to wear a tie, but I didn't get the message, and so I don't have one. I don't even want to be a part of the picture, so I'll just step aside. Well, the Honorable Dr. Herbert looked down at this little 10-year-old boy, saw he was in distress, and he said, Ties! Huh, son? Have you had any theological training? He said, no. All I've had is this one confirmation class. Dr. Herbert responded, well, I've had a lot of advanced theological training, and I can't think of anything within the rules of the Methodist church that says one has to wear a tie to be a Methodist. Come along, son. Well, when they entered the classroom where all the other kids were, the teacher stood up and said, well, Dr. Herbert, everyone is here and everyone is dressed appropriately except for one. Dr. Herbert looked over the new confirmands and said, oh, what a wonderful group of children this wonderful, wonderful group of children, ah, we're getting ready to go out and take a picture. You are the newest members of our church. And before we do, just one comment. I'm wearing a tie because I'm the pastor of this congregation, and I'm required to wear this terrible tie, even on a Thursday. But fortunately for you, you suffer under no such requirement. So I would like all the boys to remove their ties before we take the picture, because the purpose of these proceedings is to get everyone in the picture. Will Willimon, now Professor Emeritus at Duke Divinity School, concludes this story like this. He says, God is like Dr. Herbert, just without the Plymouth. Church, the goal of these proceedings, the reason we make such a big deal about studying the Bible and learning how to discern what is of God and what is not, to warn when things are starting to get off the rails and declare certain important truths, although mysterious, every Sunday, is to make sure, to the best of our ability, that everyone is in the picture. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, sometimes we don't feel like we deserve to be in the picture. And so I just pray that by your grace that you would renew and redeem and restore and remind and form us so that we would understand just how beautiful this picture is and how we are invited to be in the picture because of who you are. By your grace, restore and renew our church Give us what we need to work out your mission in the world in our various everyday ordinary circumstances.
that you call extraordinary and eternal and deeply meaningful. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.